This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. You know, we're an all-hazards organization. We deal with anything that comes at us, just like every local and state emergency manager. And as far as specific risks, we actually don't detail specific risks in the strategic plan. It's The right. plan is by definition strategic. So, I mean, I know we don't talk about earthquakes and tornadoes in our strategic plan. Hey, welcome to EM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe. And today, uh, we're talking FEMA's strategic plan with Dr. Daniel Knutsky. He is the Deputy Administrator for the Protection and National Preparedness Program for FEMA. Really excited to have him on the show. It's a really great interview, so I can't wait till we get to it. But before we get into the interview, let's talk about EM Student uh, really quick. Our new program is, is here to help develop the future thought leader, and that's the Emergency Management Student. So if you are a current EM, have any ideas that you'd like to share with the EM student, uh, let us know. You can reach out to us via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook groups, and, and uh, page through emweekly.com, forums.emweekly.com. Shoot us an email, smoke signals, whatever it is. Get the information to us. And if this is something that you think is important for emergency management students to know, ideas, tips going into the future of emergency management, let us know. And we'd love to share that uh, information uh, with them as well. Moving forward on this, this week in Ask Todd, Steve Murphy from, uh, I'm going to screw this up, Stephen, Dufour County in Ontario, Canada, and he asked about the rate of the average house loses in heat after losing power. And well, Steve, I had to put that one out to the community because I really don't know off the top of my head and I'm not in uh, construction. So I put it out there to the to the community to see what kind of answers were. And unfortunately, we don't have a solid, solid answer. We have a lot of probabilities here going on here, right? So the variables that are out there depends on the construction, when it was built, the installation, the windows, the doors, um, all those type of things can really come into how quick heat leaves, including how many people are in the house, how big is the house, how big is each room. So those all come into play. John Conway points out that the R rating of the doors and the windows has it makes a big play into how much heat and um, coolness for that matter stays inside the house so that as well how new are the windows are those those single plane windows that we had growing up or are they the double plane with the gas, gas in the middle of them there's a lot of variables there as well so Ian Breyer uh, even points out that we're going to take about looking at Newton's laws of cooling uh, that will apply so Steve there is room for a study there I really can see it and I know for creating your plan right now it doesn't really help you out but again, going out to the community and there's all those variables, especially, you know, being up into the Ontario region of, uh, of Canada, you know, I mean, it's an older, um, older area as well. I, I'm, if it's you know, anywhere near where I grew up, you know, the older homes and um, I grew up in upstate New York, those older homes that are out there and 
you know, I don't know. Uh, that's the worst part about it is there was not a definitive answer that I can come and let you know. But I think you take those uh, few answers that we have out there, put them together, and, and kind of maybe fi- pick a model house, maybe pick medium year and, and sort of do the study in that, and you can get a, an about time on it. So that's all I can really help you with there. Uh, but, however, I do see that this would be a really cool uh, research topic uh, for some of our students or for anybody for that matter, and it could really help with getting some good building codes made around heat uh, and cooling for that matter, but around heat specifically, I can see that saving lives. So Steve, thank you so much for the question. I wish I could get some definitive answers for you in that one, but couldn't do it this time. So anyway, if you have any questions, ask Todd. If I don't know the answer, we're going to search it for you and we're going to get the closest thing to a solid answer as we can. That being said, let's get into the interview. I'm here with Dr. Kanuski from FEMA and looking forward to this interview. So uh, Dr. Kanuski, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate it. So, sir, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in emergency management. Well, I got started as a firefighter paramedic in a small town in northern Minnesota. And after I went to college, I realized that this is what I wanted to do uh, for my career. And uh, as a result of uh, a a few events such as 9-11, I got more focused on something that then became known as Homeland Security and combined my interest as a first responder and Homeland Security and I was asked to join FEMA about six months ago, and here I am now. Awesome. Congratulations on, on that. Um, so I know in your, in your bio, you kind of went back and forth a little bit through different jobs and you worked throughout your career. So it looks like you, uh, you did some time working with George Washington University. Can you tell me a little bit about your time at, the, at George Washington? Sure. Yeah, I spent uh, a good chunk of my career at GW uh, as a as a student, uh, both undergrad as well as a PhD student, as an administrator, I was a, a assistant vice president for Homeland Security there and oversaw many of the university's Homeland Security programs. And uh, we had a think tank. Uh, it was then called the Homeland Security Policy Institute. It's now known as the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. And I was affiliated with them up until right uh, before I took this job as a, as a senior fellow in my spare time. But yeah, I spent a lot of time at GW. Uh, I, I have a, a deep appreciation for academia. And it brought together many of my interests. One of the things we've been talking about lately, and that was over at UAlbany this week, uh, talking to the students over there, and uh, we're talking about professionalizing emergency management and getting some sort of national standard of what an emergency manager is. Is that something that you, is that something you think you can get behind? Yeah, I think that uh, here at FEMA, we have uh, a large focus on professionalizing emergency management. I mean, just look at our Emergency Management Institute with uh, many areas we bring in, whether you're a a relatively uh, new FEMA employee and you're brought on and given a 101 on emergency management, or you're a mid-career professional looking to to gain more insights at a high level, Uh, you're a more seasoned veteran and you're looking for that, that capstone in your career. I think that uh, EMI offers the opportunity to do that, along with, of course, our other training education centers like the Center for Domestic Preparedness, the National Domestic Preparedness Consortium, and the Naval Postgraduate School. Along that lines of professionalizing emergency management, one of the programs that you guys created uh, was the uh, Prep Talk. Can you talk about that process of creating Prep Talk and what and how you see that moving forward? Yeah, Prep Talks is a very exciting new offering here. And it's frankly, it's taken off. Uh, It's gone viral, I guess is the right term, right, in the social media world. But these are 15 to 20 minute talks that are essentially a a TED talk, if you're familiar with with those, for emergency management. And so the first one symposium we did was actually at GW, and it was back in January. 
and we recorded all of those uh, sessions, and we've been posting those to the website, and I believe they're all posted now. If you go to fema.gov backslash prep talks, and I think it's really an innovative uh, approach to spreading new ideas and sparking conversation and promoting leadership on these issues that we all care so deeply about. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a really great program, and I really think it, it ties emergency managers in together across the country to some common themes, and, and I, I was really excited to see some of the presenters on there. So I think you guys are doing a great job with that, by the way. Thank you. So now we're into the strategic plan, and um, I know that it's been met with mixed reviews. Can you talk a little bit about the strategic plan and how you guys got there and, and how that's going to impact the emergency management pro, uh, so community across the nation? Sure. We set this bold vision forward, as as uh, the administrator uh, tasked us to do, which is thinking more broadly than maybe we had uh, prior to this. Uh, now, from my perspective, again, I joined six months ago. Hurricane Maria was coming ashore. We were focused on the immediate needs. But now we've been able to take a step back. We've been able to look back at the lessons learned from the 2017 hurricane season, as well as the wildfires and a number of other disasters we've confronted, and said, how could we do this better? What are those lessons that we learned? And this is the perfect opportunity to then leverage those lessons into something we do for the next five years in the form of a strategic plan. So we sought input uh, from, obviously, FEMA employees here at headquarters, the regions, from all the disaster sites around the country, as well as from external stakeholders. We had a a number of engagement sessions with the private sector, with the emergency management community, and all of those uh, flowed up here uh, to, to, to FEMA headquarters, where the administrator and his senior leadership team sat down and said, how can we bucket these, all these good ideas? There's so many good ideas. Let's put them in, in some manageable size buckets, right? And those three buckets emerged as, number one, fostering a culture of preparedness. Number two, readying the nation for catastrophic disasters. And number three, reducing the complexity of FEMA programs. So with fostering the, the uh, culture of preparedness, how do you see that getting down to the local level? I think we need to take a step back and realize that FEMA is not a first responder. And I know you know that, and I know your listeners know that. But I don't know that the American public knows that. And so the key here is to empower the individual, that individuals will be truly the first responders, right? It's, it's you and your neighbors and your community that come together and help each other in those initial hours and potentially days into a disaster until uh, emergency managers can muster a response to your doorstep. Right? I think it would be unrealistic to expect, whether it be FEMA or even a local or state emergency manager, to be there immediately, to be there within minutes or even hours, again, at your doorstep uh, providing assistance. So we need to set expectations among individuals that, that they need to be prepared. And of course, this is not a new theme. This is something that FEMA and the federal government, uh, DHS specifically, have talked about for years in the form of the Ready campaign. You know, everybody should certainly go to ready.gov and familiarize yourself with those plans and skills that you could use as an individual following a disaster. But we need to do more than that. We need to engage individuals in a conversation. And, and the way we, we intend to do that is, is essentially uh, a campaign, a readiness campaign, and ask the kind of questions uh, that maybe we haven't been so blunt about asking about uh, individuals and families' level of preparedness. For example, do all of us know uh, how to shut off the water or the gas to our homes? Do we know which of our neighbors might need assistance following a disaster? Do each of us know CPR? 
And, and the way we can ask those really simple questions is through our communities. I'm sure, listen, whether we're a member of a, a volunteer fire department or a community organization, there are many opportunities for all of us as emergency managers to engage the public and ask some of those questions. Mm-hmm. And I'd see that as, as the obvious next step. Now, there are additional parts of individual preparedness that have either not been broadly discussed or, or, or just forgotten in the wake of disasters. And that's something that the administrators, uh, you know, very passionate about here is, is something you'll hear them talk about, liquid asset poverty, how many individuals and many families in, in the United States can't put their hands on several hundred dollars that they might need in an emergency. That's a problem. You know, we need to encourage financial preparedness the same way we do emergency preparedness. Yeah, and you guys had one of the prep talks specifically talking about that, and I thought that was a very uh, unique take on that problem. My senior thesis is from my undergrad. I did it on the uh, Northridge earthquake. I'm sorry, on the Whittier Narrows earthquake, and talking about uh, how the minority women-owned businesses were the ones that suffered the most on the recovery. And I think that has a lot to do with what you're just talking about as far as the financial uh, preparedness that people have. Absolutely. Yes, John Hope Bryan is the one who did that prep talk. And absolutely, I have his book actually on my on my shelf right in front of me here. So yes, he uh, eloquently put the financial preparedness priority out as that, as that prep talk. Now, are you trying to get people to come on the prep talk that are matching those three priorities that the director has, or is it just just a different type of theme? No, absolutely. All of this is tied together. In fact, I don't think uh, there's anything that I do that isn't somehow tied to that strategic plan. In fact, I mean, with those three pretty clear priorities, we can always think about uh, what we do uh, in the context of those three priorities. And, And for me, uh, I'm very passionate about the culture of preparedness. Listen, I could talk for hours just about that priority. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. things we didn't talk about on financial uh, preparedness is the role of insurance. Right. Insurance, of course, is something that that we FEMA care about in the context of flood. So, because we own the National Flood Insurance Program. But beyond just flood, and we can talk more about that if you like, everybody needs to have adequate insurance on their home, their auto, themselves. Uh, because quite simply... There is no better recovery tool than insurance. Those who are insured will recover more quickly and more fully than those who don't. Now, on the topic of flood, let's look at what the statistics from Hurricane Harvey. So let's go to Harris County, Texas, where the average uh, payout from our individual assistance program was around $4,000. So if you were uninsured and lost something, like your home, your belongings, you would get on average about $4,000, and clearly that's not going to make you whole. Whereas if right. you had a flood insurance policy, you would have received, on average, about $110,000. Clearly that's oh. going to go a lot further in speeding your recovery and making you whole than if you were uninsured and relied on FEMA's programs. So, yeah, there, there is no better recovery tool than insurance. Is the flood insurance program... Sustainable? The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. The modern emergency manager wears a lot of hats, so how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It is a matter of time, and how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. We offer pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations, and more, all coming from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jumpstart on the exercise process and visit us today at www.ttxvault.com. 
emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple to use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Welcome back from that break and thank you so much for listening to our sponsors. Without them, we couldn't really bring you uh, what we have. So check them out and let them know that you came from EM Weekly. Let's continue the interview. Is the flood insurance program sustainable? Well, flood insurance is already deeply in debt. I mean, we're close to $20 billion in debt at present. Half of that debt after Harvey was canceled by the Congress, so they canceled about $16 billion. But again, we're still deeply, deeply in debt, 20 some, you know, close to $20 billion in debt, I believe, at, at the moment. So whether sustainable or not is an issue of us taking out more and more loans. Now, long term, it is not sustainable, right? Think about just going deeper and deeper into debt just from your personal perspective or your business or your company. You can't do that. So what we really need is for Congress to give us the reforms to the National Flood Insurance Program that we've been looking for, including risk-adjusted rates paired with an affordability program, because it really makes no sense, either from a business standpoint or a government perspective, to just continue to go deeper in debt, even if that is an option. And again, if a Harvey happened tomorrow or a major flooding event happened over and over again, we would just simply drive drive up that debt. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely an issue for sure. I know that some a couple of people are really working hard on, on making that, that happen. So let's keep that uh, in the back of our mind, everybody, that uh, we need to support those reforms on the flood insurance. Let's move on to, to one other question here. I was just reading an article, and it says that FEMA hopes to embed staff in local communities. Can you talk about that program a little bit and, and what the vision is? Sure. That goes to goal number two, which is readying the nation for catastrophic disasters. Now, one of the major lessons from this disaster season, of course, that was that FEMA can't support a number of disasters all at once at the same level that we could if we had just one disaster. So mm-hmm. when what many don't, many members of the American public don't realize, and again, I'm sure your listeners have a better appreciation for this, which is even before Harvey came ashore, we had 32 open disasters around this country. We had FEMA staff deployed around to 32 different disasters around this country who were not, uh, you know, in Texas, who were not subsequently in Florida. And as we started to redeploy, of course we had to focus on on Maria in Puerto Rico. Now, the lesson learned there is FEMA should focus on the catastrophic disasters. The administrator feels very strongly we should not have FEMA personnel spread all around the country so that uh, when the worst thing happens, you know, uh, three catastrophic hurricanes or something worse, that we're not stretched so thin as we were this time. Mm-hmm. Well, in order for us to do that, given that we're not going to be able to double the number of personnel uh, you know, at FEMA overnight, certainly, we want the, our, our partners at the, you know, the state and local level to, to step up and take on more responsibility in managing these disasters. And one way we would do that, uh, that we envision, is for FEMA to continue to fund presidentially declared disasters. So nothing changes with the Stafford Act, nothing changes with the funding that would be provided to the governors following a disaster. We're looking to see how many state and local personnel can step up and manage recovery programs. Now, there's actually a test case that, we, that we're doing right now in Texas 
what we realized following Harvey that we would have such a, a tremendous housing challenge down there. And then on top of that, we had Maria coming ashore that we asked the state if they could take on more responsibility in managing their own housing recovery. And the state did. The governor stepped up to the plate and said, you know what, if you continue to fund us, we will find a way to manage this. And that is ongoing. I mean, that is continuing to go. And there's a term term of art that we came up with during the disaster that is has stuck. And it probably sums up best goal number two. And that is having disasters that are federally supported, state managed, and locally executed. Right. So that Texas housing program would be one example that we'd want to you know look at going forward. Now, specifically on the teams you mentioned, that's one way to help build up capacity at the state level. And right now, again, we're focused on the states. It's possible we could go to uh, uh, localities in the future, but the the term for that are FEMA integration teams. So these FIT teams, as we're calling them, uh, these would be a, a handful of personnel from FEMA. So these are FEMA staff who would go on site again, right now it's states, go to the states and fill in some of the gaps that they might have, build them up to a level where they can manage their own response and recovery on areas that maybe they couldn't right now. And the, the best example is probably logistics. Right. Uh, I'm not sure that every state has a, has a strong logistics capability. And to the extent that that is because they don't have resident experts in logistics, we want to provide them with those experts. We want to provide them with FEMA logistics experts to teach those state officials how they can build a logistics program so that when the next disaster happens, they are better prepared to manage their logistics program. I see that as a win-win. Oh, yeah, for sure. Speaking of that, one of the things that we have, obviously, nationally is the ESFs, and some states don't embrace the concept of the ESF. And how do we really, as as a profession, as emergency managers, encourage the use of the ESF without having a mandate from the federal government? Yeah, obviously, this is something that, that we at FEMA embrace. And you're right, maybe not every state or local government fully embraces those the way we do. We obviously believe in it because we, we do it. But I think that there are two, obviously, really important aspects that can uh, help educate our stakeholders on why this is important. Two documents are specific. Uh, and again, this should be no surprise to, to your listeners, but the National Response Framework and the National Incident Management System. So both the NRF and NIMS, I think, explain in, in pretty uh, significant detail how the ESFs work and I hope why we use them. Listen, if there's a better idea out there, we're always open to it. But I can tell you in the the 20 years that I've been involved in the field, this has been discussed over and over. There's been some tweaks to NIMS Mm -hmm. There's been tweaks to the NRF. Obviously, remember the NRP was the document uh, at the time that doctrine at the time that uh, Katrina hit. I think a lot of those lessons have been integrated in the current versions of NIMS and, and the NRF. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, for me, embracing the ESF concept makes sense because it's easier to order things, right, when you're, you know exactly what you're going to get and what you need to have and what function they're going to have and how we can get how you can get them. But that's just my take on it. So, anyway, that's just uh, that's Todd's, Todd's opinion. Not yeah, and opinion. I, I obviously agree with that. <laughs> FEMA agrees with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. So, coming to the, the third, your third um, core competency here for – for what we're trying to do. How does that, how do you impart that again to the local, to the local level? Because that's where disasters really occur. Sure. Yeah. Reducing complexity is goal number three. And listen, we have our own challenges here at FEMA. We have over 200 IT systems that may or may not all talk to each other. We have 10 just for grants alone. 
and there's a lot of complexity there. We need to reduce that complexity uh, by looking at how to streamline those those IT efforts. But it's but it's beyond that, right? And what we really care about, whether it be FEMA or local and state officials, is how do we streamline the disaster assistance process for disaster survivors? Now, the first step and it was taken, uh, you know, a few years ago in creating a disasterassistance.gov. And I think that's a step in the right direction. There's several recovery programs that are now consolidated on that website that you can apply in a kind of a unified way. But that doesn't go far enough. We really need a 2.0 effort here. We need the next version of, of disasterassistance.gov. We need to reduce the number of times that a disaster survivor has to interface with various federal programs. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, currently, if you're if you have significant loss to your home and require or uninsured or required assistance, you're going to have to obviously interface with someone from FEMA talking about individual assistance. If you have a flood claim, well, then that's the National Flood Insurance Program. Mm-hmm. And, if you, and if you have both of those, then you're going to be you know, having to talk to multiple individuals here at FEMA. And then you multiply that times the number of other programs that are, exist throughout the federal government, you know, like the Small Business Administration loans, uh, programs with the Department of Agriculture and others. You could be interfacing with not just one, but several different federal agencies represented with several different individuals. And that doesn't sound very streamlined to me. You know, the end state would be that you would speak to one individual and associated with that inspection. So you shouldn't have to have multiple inspections of your home just because they're for different federal programs. So yeah, that end state is to have one person, one inspection, and a unified approach to recovery for that disaster survivor. Well, that makes things so much easier that way. Yeah, we, I, would, I would love to see that sooner rather than later. As, as you can imagine, there are a number of challenges to whether it be systems or, uh, you know, just bureaucracies and, and changing the way we currently do business. It, it's going to be a challenge, but we've put it out there as a goal. And I, I should say all of these goals, we believe are very, could, be, could each present challenges, of course, but we think that they're all very achievable, too. Mm-hmm. Right. We wouldn't have set these goals. If we didn't think at some point we can achieve each of these. But I'll tell you what, the administrator sets the bar high. You know, his his mantra is be bold, right? Obviously, in the news and in conversations, there's a little bit of pushback on, on these goals. Why do you think that there's this pushback? Is it just the change portion of it? Or well, what's the biggest complaint that you've had on uh, on these three goals that you created? Well, I'll say that overall, I personally haven't seen any pushback. So overall saying here are the three strategic goals. It's hard to disagree that we shouldn't do a better job of reducing complexity like we just talked about, or that FEMA shouldn't be better prepared for catastrophic disasters, or the individual shouldn't be better prepared to take care of themselves and their family. So I, I honestly haven't heard any pushback on that. Now, as far as if there are you know, constituencies that have issues with how we are going to do that, maybe at the objective level, whether it be, you know, we talked about the FEMA integration teams. It's possible that, you know, local governments uh, would want that sooner rather than later. Like, why are we focused on the states? I, that's a plausible you know, question, I guess. Uh, and our answer is pretty simple, which is we're, we're basically doing this in phases. And for phase one, we're going to pick a handful of states because we can't, frankly, we can't do all 50 states right now. There's certainly no way we could do thousands of jurisdictions right now. So we've picked a handful of states and we're going to start it there and and see where it goes. So I think it's a a good opportunity for us to get 
all of us collectively uh, in the emergency management community get our feet wet on what we mean on readying for catastrophic disasters. And we'll make some improvements over time. And by the time we roll it out to more and more states and eventually, and again, I fingers crossed, hopefully to other levels of government, I think we will have a, a very successful program at that point. But yeah, I, I, we haven't gotten any pushback on, on the strategic goals themselves. I think it's more of you know, the interests uh, of all the constituency groups as far as how we achieve each of these, the sub goals, the, the objectives, so to speak. Right. I'll just let you know. I, I mean, I support them. Uh, I've been reading them. I think they're they're great. Uh, I've pushed them out on our E Weekly website and had some conversation over there. The majority of the people who we've spoken to, I know the only concern that some people have had, and I know this one's congresswoman was talking about it, the fact that uh, that that global warming or climate change uh, was not mentioned in the goals, and I don't really think that's something that FEMA could control, and I don't know why that uh, people are, are pushed on that, but uh, that seems to be the the thing that was bugging that particular person, I suppose. But I do agree with the, what, where the direction that you're going. I think that, like you said before, all, all of our disasters are local. And as a local emergency manager, you, you have to run it the way that you can do it in the most efficient manner. And you know your jurisdiction better than anybody else. And, and uh, having the partnerships with FEMA prior to that regarding training and what they're and matching their strategic goals I think would, would do the best for that local emergency manager and, and the states as well. So I, I do, I think that you guys are going in the right direction. Again, I appreciate just, that. Uh, yeah. And, and I would say for any, any pushback uh, that we get about us not focusing on a particular topic or not, you know, we're an all hazards organization. We deal with anything that comes at us, just like every local and state emergency manager. And as far as specific risks, we actually don't detail specific risks in the strategic plan. It's the right. plan is by definition strategic. So, I mean, I know we don't talk about earthquakes and tornadoes in our strategic plan, but that doesn't mean that we don't care about earthquakes and tornadoes. We frankly care about all risks and all hazards, and we will respond effectively to all of those types of disasters, again, with our state and local partners, regardless of what particular risk or hazard it is. That's awesome. Okay, so coming here to the end, I got a couple more questions for you. If people wanted to get a hold of your organization and to learn more about what you guys are doing, how could they find you? I mean, obviously, FEMA.gov is the the one stop shop for us. Uh, if right. it's something specific like prep talks, do the backslash prep talks, and you can just. I would encourage everybody, frankly, Google the FEMA strategic plan, uh, you'll see a lot of material on our website about this, whether it be infographics, the entire plan, as well as something we didn't talk about is how to hold us accountable. How will we know that we've achieved our goals? We've established uh, metrics, uh, performance metrics on each of the objectives. So under the goals, there's objectives and each of those we're making public. So you can actually find those and see how we're measuring ourselves on those, as well as, of course, I, this, I have to give the plug for the FEMA app. I would hope everybody that's listening right now has downloaded the FEMA app. And if you haven't, please do so, because, again, that's a, it's a good resource and one that I think we can continue to build on over time, because that's, quite frankly, how we interface with the, with the government increasingly is not you know, by phone or even by website. It's, the, it's apps. It's so true. Everything is kind of getting to that point. Oh, I did one more question I forgot to ask. Working with your the NGOs, you know, the nonprofit response agencies or or uh, disaster response agencies, that is, like the Red Cross or Salvation Army or Kim Rubicon, is there a, a goal or room in with FEMA with working with those organizations, or is that still more of a local connection that they have to make? 
I think that is uh, they're an essential part of obviously our, our mission as well as our strategic plan. And so, just think about culture preparedness. Could we ever really foster culture preparedness without community organizations and NGOs standing side by side with us? Or could we ever ready the, on goal two? Could we ever ready the nation for catastrophic disasters without those so many of those NGOs that stepped up to the plate and supported the response during this busy hurricane season? I, I think of just so many examples and sheltering and feeding survivors to providing financial assistance that we just simply could not have done. We, we, the emergency management community, could simply have not done without uh, the NGO community. So true. So true. All right, here comes the toughest question of the day. What book or books would you recommend to the emergency management community uh, on EM stuff or in just in general leadership stuff? Well, I would say a few things. One is uh, you know, there's academic books out there that, that all of us uh, either read uh, in our undergrad or graduate studies that I think provide a great baseline uh, on emergency management. But for those that are you know, kind of ready to step up to the plate and, and take it to the, to the next step, I think it's, it's worth looking into you know, financial preparedness. Like uh, I just mentioned John Hope Bryant's book is on my shelf called The Memo. And that teaches you, uh, it says five rules for your economic liberation. Is that something that us in the emergency management community have thought about? Or certainly citizens. I I doubt many citizens have thought about how their financial uh, well-being is directly tied to emergency management. But as far as a a kind of a mainstream emergency management text, I'd say let's go to Amanda Ripley. She had a recent prep talk. Go, Go listen to her prep talk. And, uh, if you'll, I think you'll be impressed and you can pick up her book called the unthinkable. It is a good book. That's for sure. And she is a great speaker. I've heard her speak at a couple of conferences I went to. So yeah, awesome uh, recommendation. All right, sir. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the emergency management community before we let you go? Well, just thank you everyone for being such great partners, whether it be during this really busy hurricane season, uh, the wildfires in California and everything else in between, we value this partnership more than you can ever imagine. We know at FEMA, and you know, I think, that FEMA is not a first responder. We can't do this on our own. We ask simply going forward, if you see elements of that strategic plan that resonate with you, take it on. Embrace it. Make it your own. And all of us together, uh, working towards these common ends, I think will mean a more prepared nation at the end of the day. So thank you to everybody. Appreciate it. Well, sir, thank you for your time, and uh, I'd like to do this again sometime. Great. Well, thank you so much, Todd. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com.